Sam wasn't sure what to do. Sam had built a good relationship with his neighbour. They often shared a chat over the fence, even popped in for a coffee every so often. They're good neighbours, but Sam wasn't sure what to do. His neighbour was a Muslim, it was the end of Ramadan, and his neighbour had invited him to celebrate Eid, a feast marking the end of Ramadan. Sam is a Christian and he likes his neighbour, had spoken to him a little about Jesus, so he wasn't sure what to do. Eid is a Muslim celebration. Is it an anti-gospel thing to go along? Would it dishonour Christ? Is it a spiritually perilous thing to do? Or is it just a cultural party? And so would this actually going along be a good way to deepen the relationship and have conversations that really matter? Followers of Jesus sometimes have to make these kinds of decisions. Sometimes the question is whether something might be spiritually perilous. Maybe it's because the decision will be costly. To follow Jesus might make relationships socially awkward or It might even be more costly. It could cost you a promotion or your job or you'll wind up in front of the courts. Today we'll see Paul navigate two challenging situations and we're going to see the complexity of knowing and doing God's will. These events touch on the topic of guidance and ethics. In tricky situations, how do we know what God would have us do? This is a really tricky part of the Bible. I found the two growth groups that I'm a part of very helpful. Discussing God's word has clarified what I think's going on. So thanks to those who are part of a growth group and have chatted to me about uh, this part of the Bible. And I suppose just then you've had a not-so-subtle plug for being part of a growth group and learning together. All right, so let's get into it. In the history of Acts, we're up to the final scenes. Paul is on his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, His goal is to be in Jerusalem by the feast of Pentecost. You can see that in Acts 20.16. When you hear Pentecost, don't immediately think the pouring out of the Spirit. This is the regular annual Jewish harvest festival. Jews from around the world would travel to Jerusalem to give thanks to God. And Paul wants to be there even though he knows it won't be easy. Last week when Paul was speaking with the Ephesian elders, this is what he said. It's up on the screen. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. I reckon Luke's wanting us to hear an echo of Jesus Jesus said his face to Jerusalem, knowing he would suffer and die there. Now, Paul's suffering isn't like Jesus. It's not going to pay for anyone's sin. But this is Paul, the model disciple, metaphorically taking up his cross to follow Jesus. And as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, the tension rises. Churches along the way realise what's going to happen and urge Paul to reconsider. So read along with me from verse 1, Acts 21 and verse 1. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. 
After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. You feel the love these believers have for Paul. They urge Paul not to go towards suffering and harm. And when he leaves Tyre, the whole church, men, women, children, they see him off, not wanting him to go. But whilst their love is clear, the Spirit's role raises a question. Verse 4, it's through the Spirit they urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem. This raises a question. Did the Spirit tell them to dissuade Paul? Luke says, through the Spirit. What did the Spirit reveal to these believers? Or maybe through the Spirit doesn't mean a special revelation, but as Paul talks of prison and hardship, it's by the love they have in the Spirit they urge Paul to reconsider. Verse 4 starts raising the question of guidance and God's will, and we're going to see that even more as Paul continues on to Caesarea. Because in Caesarea, we see a prophetic message being given, and once again, people try to dissuade Paul. Verse 7, We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Agabus is most likely the same bloke we meet in chapter 11. In that chapter, Agabus had come to Antioch, I think you can just see Antioch on the map, uh, with a prophecy of an impending famine. The church takes him seriously. They send Paul and Barnabas with aid to the Jerusalem church. So if it's the same bloke, he's got runs on the board. Uh, His message this time is very similar. He comes with a warning. It's a bit strange how he acts it out, tying hands and feet, but we see similar things with the Old Testament prophets. Agabus has a simple message. He doesn't tell Paul anything he doesn't already know. He's going to Jerusalem to suffer and be arrested. Uh, Paul takes this prophecy as a warning and preparation. God is telling him so he'll be prepared, so he doesn't lose heart when things go pear-shaped up in Jerusalem. But the rest of the believers, the rest of the church there in Caesarea, including Luke, 
the inspired author of the gospel and acts. You notice the word we, Luke is there. This is what Luke says to Paul. No one else interprets Agabus's message the same way. They understand God sent Agabus to protect Paul, to get him as far away from Jerusalem as possible. When we have a difficult decision to make, you might wish God would send a prophet like Agabus, someone to tell you what's going to happen, someone to help you know what God's will is. But we see here that's not even how it worked in apostolic times. Prophecy required interpretation and wisdom in application. Is it a message of warning, get away from Jerusalem? Or is it a message to strengthen, go up to Jerusalem, be prepared to suffer for Christ? It's not unlike how the Spirit speaks as we read the Bible. It requires discernment to understand how to apply what God says. And we're going to see that as Paul gets to Jerusalem. And one other thing. We see here that the wise, God-honouring decision is rarely the easy option. Uh, Sometimes Christians talk about God opened a door. Uh, I think what they mean is things come together easily. Things came together easily. God opened wide the door and the door God opened is the automatic uh, sliding door that takes you into the air-conditioned shopping centre. Now, I don't know why we think this is. Jesus says, wide and easy is the path that leads to destruction. But the gate is narrow and difficult on the path to life. God may open the door, but it's a narrow door and the way is hard. Paul is willing to do God's will, even though it'll be hard. The door was open, the ship got him there to suffer for the name of Jesus. And so he continues up to Jerusalem. Verse 15. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When he arrives in Jerusalem, Paul is confronted with attention. What I think must have been a difficult decision. Just as the the gospel had been growing throughout modern-day Turkey and Greece, it's also been growing in Jerusalem and Judea. There are now many thousands of believers. They are believers in Christ, followers of Jesus. And whilst they've come to believe Jesus is the Christ, they've also become passionate about their Jewish identity, zealous for the law of Moses. And this big group of believers in Jerusalem... They've heard about Paul and they haven't liked what they've heard. They think he's sold out on his Jewish principles, his Jewish identity. They've heard he eats with Gentiles, welcomes them into God's people without circumcision. They can be saved without first becoming Jewish. And they're wondering, well, what is it that he's telling Jews out there in the world? Is he causing Jews to forget their cultural heritage? to stop living in a specifically Jewish way. That's the situation. Let's read from verse 17. So verse 17, When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. 
Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. What's the problem here? The problem is the unity of the Christian movement worldwide and the peace of the church in Jerusalem. Most importantly, the fellowship between Judean believers and those in Asia, Macedonia and Achaia. The risk is if Paul and James don't navigate this problem well, there's going to be a schism. Now, to be sure, the question is not about Gentiles. It's not about whether Gentiles need to follow the law of Moses. That's already been settled in Acts 15. James was the one who worked out things there, and James says the same thing again in verse 25. His mind, the mind of Christians in Jerusalem, has not changed when it comes to Gentiles. Verse 25, as for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. There, to steer clear from idol worship, it's not about following the laws of Moses. The issue isn't what Gentiles should do. Faith in Christ alone is what brings them, what brings us into God's people. Not circumcision, not sacrifices, not vows, not the law, faith alone. The question is, well, what about Jews? Should Jews, can Jews continue to live out their Jewishness? Not only can they circumcise their sons, but should they? And should they continue to only eat clean food, no bacons, no no prawns? Should they celebrate Jewish festivals, Passover, Pentecost, Sabbath? Should they go to to the temple to pray and make offerings? This is the question. Gentiles have been welcomed into God's people and they can do so as Gentiles, keeping all of their their cultural customs that are Gentile, but they don't have to become like Jews culturally. But what about Jews? Can they keep being culturally Jewish? Now, James has a solution to this problem. Instead of inviting Paul to stand up and debate or argue, he just needs to, to walk the walk. He just needs to show his Jewishness. He needs to be involved with some Christian men, some Christian Jewish men who've made a vow. It sounds like the Nazarite vow we read about in number six. So he's to go to the temple, pay for the offerings, and also undergo Jewish purification rituals, which Jews would need to do before entering the temple, especially after spending so long with Gentiles. That's what James suggests. And Paul goes along with it, verse 23. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. The next day Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. 
Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Now this is really tricky to work out. Is Paul doing the right thing here or not? Is getting purified at the temple, paying for vows to be completed, is Paul acting out of conviction? Is this the right thing to do? Is he making a concession? It's not really what he wants to do, but it's the best for unity and to bring about slow change. Or is this utter compromise? Has he sinned and denied Christ in participating in temple rituals? Is it conviction, concession, or compromise? It's not simple to work out which one it is. Uh, There's reasons to think Paul does this out of gospel convictions. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts, which we're going to read over the next couple of weeks, as Paul is arrested and taken to trial before various courts, he continually pleads his innocence. He says over and over again, he has nothing against the law of Moses. He's not opposed to the temple. And Paul's not lying. The gospel isn't against the law or the temple. The gospel says Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the temple. Christians don't hate the Jerusalem temple because it's a shadow of the true temple. It's the shadow of Christ. And it's a shadow of the church where the spirit dwells. We're not against the temple, we just know where it's fulfilled. And Christians aren't against the law of Moses because it takes us to Christ and is fulfilled in and by him. Now, we don't look to the law to be made right with God and we don't live under the law because Christ has freed us. We're not against these things, but we know where they're fulfilled in Christ. So there's truth to what Paul says, he, and he may well be acting under conviction. But I'm not so sure. I'm not sure any follower of Jesus should be described as zealous for the law. I'm not sure that being purified in the temple is in keeping with trusting what Christ did on the cross. So maybe Paul does this as a concession or even he compromised. What do I mean by concession or even compromise? Well, Take, for example, the claim that Paul discouraged circumcision. We know that because of Jesus, circumcision is not a big deal. Galatians 6.15 says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Because of Jesus, circumcision is not a big deal. What matters is being made new by faith through, sorry, being made made new through faith and by the Spirit. Now, we've heard this in Galatians last year. If someone forces you to be circumcised and says, you've got to be circumcised to get right with God, that is a big deal. That is a very big deal. But here, as a cultural practice, ah, it's neither here nor there. And that's why Paul had Timothy circumcised in Acts chapter 16. Paul knows it doesn't really matter. It's of no spiritual significance. And so he's happy to make that concession in Acts 16 for the sake of gospel mission. It could be Paul's doing the same kind of thing here. This is very similar to Acts 16. He knows, look, the purification rituals in the temple, they're they're meaningless. 
And so if it's going to build unity amongst Christians, he'll do it. Out of love, he'll do it. It's like the stronger and weaker believer in Romans 14. Now, saying that what he's doing is a concession, what this means is Paul is hoping to teach and grow maturity in the Jerusalem believers. Slowly, he wants them to see the full implications of the gospel. But to do that, to get to that goal, he's got to make some concessions. He's not going to get anywhere. He's not going to help them grow in maturity in Christ if he gets kicked out straight away, if he can't get a hearing. So it may be that Paul is making concessions here, though there is a possibility that Paul has compromised. Put yourself in his shoes. The pressure of James, the elders, and thousands of zealous Jewish believers. And it's, it's, just, it's just all too much for Paul. And he makes the wrong choice. And you're now very anxious, aren't you? The minister up the front has just said Paul's made a mistake. But Paul's not Jesus. He, he's not sinless. He does make mistakes. It could be that going to the temple was a mistake. The New Testament makes it very clear that offering sacrifices, and surely that's what the the purification at the temple involved, Hebrews 10 makes it very clear that Christians are not to offer blood sacrifices. Hebrews 10.1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But these sacrifices are an annual reminder of our sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then it quotes a psalm and continues. Uh, first he said, sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, that's God did not desire, nor were they pleased, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy been made pure through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How does going to the temple not re-establish the first and deny that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has made believers pure once for all? Now, as you read the book of Acts carefully... It's not easy to work out whether Paul acts out of conviction, concession or compromise. As I said, Paul's not sinless, but at the same time, he is never rebuked for paying the vows and being purified. He never, he also never regrets or repents of this action. Though the broader New Testament does call into question his decision. Now, I've flipped between these three options as I've reflected on this passage through the week. Uh, Currently, I think Paul's making a concession. He didn't need to go to the temple. Uh, Yes, going to the temple may have caused some people to think Christians need sacrifices to be pure. But in his own mind, in his own conscience, it's just a cultural practice. And he's willing to be all things to all people. 
And he does this in order to have an opportunity to help and teach the Jerusalem believers more fully. But ultimately, I don't think we can resolve this question. We can't know for sure if this is a concession or a compromise. And I think that's good and maybe even that's the point. As we follow Jesus, we often find ourselves in situations where it's, it's not obvious what the God-honouring decision is. 1 Corinthians 9 says, I, Paul, have become all things to all people, so that by all means possible, by all possible means, I may save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. It's not always easy to work out what this looks like. How do we be all things to all people without compromising the gospel? And sometimes believers will come to different conclusions. And the reality is, it's when we're living wholeheartedly for Jesus, pushing out for the gospel mission, going into all the world with kingdom flags unfurled or whatever that song said, that's when these situations come up. If you're not doing anything for God, you'll never find yourself in a tricky situation. It's easy to be an armchair critic. It's much messier, much harder to get out on the field and play. That's where we get into the tricky situation. So easy to be an armchair critic. There's an often misunderstood quote from Martin Luther. Uh, Once he gave the advice uh, that you should love God and sin boldly. Now, some people think this means uh, that Luther reckons it doesn't matter what you do, just sin boldly, do whatever you like, God's going to forgive you anyway. Uh, That's not at all what Luther meant. Uh, This quote comes in the context of him giving advice. A friend had written asking a tricky question. So we're back in the the Protestant Reformation, 1500s. The question was, should Roman Catholic priests, monks and nuns, who hear the gospel and become Protestant, to use the label, should they keep their vow of celibacy or should they, if the opportunity presents, get married? Do you you hear the dilemma? They had taken a vow of celibacy before Almighty God. But now they realise their vow was based on faulty doctrine a wrong understanding of God and the gospel, but it was a real vow, a solemn promise. Should they keep the promise despite its anti-gospel basis or should they break the promise despite the promise having been made to God? Luther's answer is, I don't know. This is a tricky situation and different Christians will come to different conclusions, but they should love God. And trust that if they happen to make the wrong decision, if in the end it proves to have been a sinful decision, live with the bold confidence because Jesus' blood has covered their sin. He's not saying be cavalier, but considered and confident in the gospel. Throughout our lives, we will come across similar tricky situations. Maybe not quite the same. Do you pay for four men's Vows or not, their their purification or not? Do you keep your celibacy vow or not? Do you stay in a denomination where there's been theological drift? It was a question asked 40 years ago when the Uniting Church was formed. Faithful Christians made different decisions on whether to join the Uniting Church or, or to continue as within Presbyterian or Congregationalist churches. 
Bible-believing Uniting Church people are asking that question now. Are there a faithful Anglican struggling with that question now? Should they stay in a denomination where the bishop is unfaithful? And there, there are good reasons to go either way. Staying might mean making concessions, but you might bring reform. Leaving might feel pure, but it will mean losing relationships and resources and there's no chance of reform. What should you do? At a more personal level, should you participate in different cultural or interchurch events? Should you visit a mosque or temple as a tourist? When you're there, should you take off your shoes and wash your hands and face as is the custom? Should you attend the smoking ceremony at the opening of a new building at work? What do you do if you have Aboriginal Christian brothers and sisters and they've got no problem, they just see it as a cultural thing? What do you do if you do have Aboriginal Christian brothers and sisters and they think, oh no, that's pagan worship and and, and they'll have nothing to do with it? What do you do if your Aboriginal brothers and sisters come to different conclusions? One of the things we need to learn is to be slow to judge, slow to jump to conclusions, slow to assume compromise, when it may well be concession, being all things to all people for the sake of gospel mission, saving some, showing love to weaker brothers or sisters. I know some of us would prefer if everything was black and white. But as Paul goes up to Jerusalem, we see it's not always so. It's not always obvious to know God's will or what is God's will or what's not God's will. Is it, is it God's will to go to Jerusalem and suffer? Is it God's will to hear the warning and get out of there? Is it God's will to go to the temple or not? But we live knowing Christ's blood has, has covered our sin, enabling us to live boldly for him. Let's pray. Father God, please be growing us together as a church in wisdom and discernment. Help us to know how to live boldly for you. And also grow us in generosity and patience with each other, especially when Christians come to different conclusions in difficult and less clear situations. Please be growing us into a church where we can talk through these things, listening and caring for one another, even as we urge each other to love you and live passionately for you. Amen.